Hey, it's Liz Kelly. I want to tell you about our great football coverage on the Ringer Podcast Network. Every Monday, Bill Simmons and Cousin Sal recap the weekend and guess next week's NFL lines on the BS Podcast. On Wednesday mornings, Ryan Russillo hits the hardest angles in college and pro football on our new podcast, Dual Threat. And on Wednesday nights, Cousin Sal and the Degenerate Trifecta figure out the best gambling angles on Against All Odds. And five times per week, the Ringer NFL show reacts to the latest news with Kevin Clark, Robert Mays, Tate Frazier, Mike Lombardi, and the Danacy football crew. Subscribe to the BS Podcast, Dual Threat, Against All Odds, and the Ringer NFL show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Justin Charity. I'm Kate Nibbs. Welcome to Damage Control on the Channel 33 Network, a podcast where we unpack what upsets, excites, and divides us in popular culture. Gawker is coming back from the dead. Sort of. There are plans to bring back a controversial website, and these plans are questionable at best. But first, Colin Kaepernick's Nike ad definitely caught our attention. We're going to talk about responses to the ad. We're going to talk about the ad itself. We're going to figure out what it all really means. Nike recently made the civil rights activist and NFL player, I should say inactive NFL player, Colin Kaepernick, the face of its Just Do It campaign. You know, Just Do It is the iconic Nike tagline, iconic Nike campaign. And this year happens to be the 30th anniversary of the Just Do It campaign. So the tagline for Kaepernick's, uh, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. That's the tagline. And image ad and in the, the video ad, the TV commercial um, that Kaepernick stars in. And a lot of people are riled up. <laughs> a lot of people who, uh, I mean, first of all, I should say the ad is encouraging to a lot of people who stand with Kaepernick and who stood with him throughout his police brutality protests, um, kneeling during the national anthem at NFL games. You know, it's it's encouraged a lot of people. It's also irritated a lot of people who wish that Colin Kaepernick would just shut up and play football or not even play football at this point. It's in, and you basically have a lot of conservatives across the country setting their Nike apparel on fire. And I, <laughs> I, I saw a guy who set his shoes on fire while well, he, he was wearing, wearing them. It was not a good... Well, he didn't just, I should say, shout out to that one yeah. guy who set his shoes on fire while wearing them and then did, in fact, share images of his feet at charred. the hospital. Oh, God. <laughs> his skin peeled off and charred. Um, so that's where we're at right now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in terms of Nike and Colin Kaepernick and, uh, the protests. And it's, it's sort of getting out of control now that there's a mayor in Louisiana who banned Nike. Kate, you want to elaborate on this story a little bit? Um, I know that he banned local facilities from buying Nike equipment because he was angry about the ad. Right. Um, I do believe there was also a store in Denver that sort of decided to sell all its Nike um, equipment at a discount because they were mad about the ad. There's been a lot clearance. of... Get on clearance sales. Yeah, there's oh, wow. been a lot of really weird protests of, of the ad. Right. And this is all because Kaepernick you know, is the, the figurehead for these, the, the protests at NFL games during the national anthem of players kneeling as a statement about, 
uh, police brutality, right? Yeah. It's this, this, this iconic post Black Lives Matter form of protest. So white people are lighting their shoes on fire. <laughs> I don't really functionally, I have trouble understanding what this economy, like, I should say sports fans have done this before. They've done it in more trivial contests. Remember they burned with bronze jersey, and I feel like people accidentally set themselves on fire during that. But that was like a less political, let's say. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to lie to you. I distinctly remember during like the Bulls dynasty in the '90s, my mom got all these like Seattle SuperSonics apparel, and we stuff we like built a SuperSonics effigy and lit it on fire. That had nothing to do with politics. We just hated the Seattle SuperSonics. Wow. So white people have definitely been burning athletic equipment for dubious reasons for a long time. Like I can personally attest to that. Well, burning it to oppose um, a protest movement against police brutality is certainly a height yes. of, of burning athletic apparel culture. Uh, I think those people are just gonna have to replace their Nike. <laughs> you know what I mean, I think. Yes. But it, it, you know, coincidentally, Nike's online sales, at least sales in their web store, are up like 31% since they unveiled the ad with Kaepernick and, un- well, unveiled the whole campaign with Kaepernick. Um, but meanwhile, Kaepernick is seemingly blacklisted by the NFL. Um, that's sort of what makes this complicated to me, right? Is, is, mm-hmm. Kaepernick is out of work, basically. And so Nike has come along and said, well, you know, we got a Just Do It campaign we got to run. You can be the star of that. And we're obviously going to pay pay you millions of dollars to be the starring role in this this advertisement campaign. Um, and so in a way, it's like Cap has, I think the, the tricky question of Kaepernick is that he really, he sacrificed a career and Nike has stepped in as this sort of corporate benefactor yeah it's uncomfortable i definitely don't blame him for taking money from nike because he is effectively blacklisted from his chosen profession i see it from his perspective as this is an opportunity to have a really powerful backer help spread his message i definitely wish that the nike commercial had like touched on police brutality against black people yeah. like it it didn't really it just sort of yeah the advertisement is very you know i should say kaepernick he narrates the the main commercial yeah but it's and all like it's just very like good. if people say you can't do something you should do it <laughs> you know it's like that it's like all of yeah. these vignettes about um People say you're bad at basketball. Just play basketball some more and then you'll be LeBron James. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's that kind of, the commercial is that kind of sentiment. And so it's like you take believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything as a tagline. And you look at Kaepernick and you understand what the stakes of that are in his specific instance. Uh, but then the Just Do It campaign universalizes that sentiment to be about athletic commitment. It, you know, it's very like yeah. targeted at kids in a way too, where it's like you should... You should try your hardest and do your best so that you can excel. Yeah. And that's a, again, it's, it's like an appropriate message, but it also feels like a reductive, uh, again, it's like a childification of what Kaepernick's specific usage of that sort of messaging would be. Yeah. It's definitely turning very pointed activism into advertorial for shoes right um why do you think nike bought into this because i think nike 
knew that this would result in a sales bump or I mean, they couldn't know for certain. Obviously, it was a gamble in terms of like how this campaign would be received. But like Nike is Nike. Um, Michael Bauman, who's like our very smart sports writer colleague, wrote about this. And one one thing that he wrote that really stuck with me was he said, you can't build a multi-billion dollar company from scratch in 54 years if social justice is anything approaching a primary concern. Companies like Nike are by nature aggressively amoral. And I think he's spot on. And I think that Nike assessed the situation and determined that more people would buy Nike shit because of this ad. Right. And that was the bottom line. If they assessed the situation and thought that more people would buy Nike shit, if their ad was like, Stand for the anthem. Yeah. (laughs) We stand for the flag. Right. Then they would. Like, I don't think that. Someone at Nike is like actually invested in this cause um, or maybe they are, but they're not invested Mm. in this cause above selling Nike. Actually is an interesting word in that case, because I mean, they are actually invested in so much as investment is paying Colin Kaepernick. (laughs) That is an actual investment, but it's more like, are they spiritually or are they politically invested? And if anything, I think there, there are two ways to look at it, right? It's like, at best you can say, they're maybe not politically invested in the same way or in the same spirit that Kaepernick is, but they're they're sort of like passively financially invested in it. And at worst, you can look at Nike and say, in the long term, does this actually undermine the messaging? Does this undermine Cap's outlook on his protests as a way to get more people talking about police brutality. If the Nike advertisements are going to come along and recontextualize his words as being about like encouraging kids to play tennis or whatever. I I don't think it will actually water down his message. I think this was pretty smart on Cap's part too. I think that in a different like cultural moment, it would like in the nineties when people or pre-90s, I don't know, when selling out was more of a thing and people weren't so used to, like, the commodification of ideas, it would be uh, potentially, like, detrimental to the cause. And I think he's definitely, I mean, I'm sure there's, like, some people who are purists who are like, this is bullshit. And they're not wrong, but they're also, like, from his perspective of trying to get his message out there, and also just like live in the world like he doesn't have a job taking on this sponsorship, I think was I don't think it's going to hurt his cause. Yeah. What do you what do you think? I it's weird because I feel very and I know we come here with stark opinions about the <laughs> issues of the day. But I actually do feel I don't know how this ends. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know what I think about it in terms of it stressing me out that corporations can sort of by financial stakes and activist movements that theoretically should exist as like critiques of a system. Yeah. But it, I do look, I, he's, he sort of, if you view Kaepernick through the lens of formal politics, then he's very much doing the like operating within the system. Type. Yeah. You know, he's that type of person. And yeah, you're right. It's, it is easy to, I think from a more radical perspective, look at that and say, that's insufficient or that's ineffectual in the long term. And I totally get it. It's hard for me to know how this ends. It's hard for me to know whether 
Nike linking with Kaepernick add some or restore some popular legitimacy to his form of protest? I, you know what I mean? It's like Nike is big, but the NFL is also big. And Donald Trump's Twitter feed is also big. And to me, I look at it as like Nike, again, on a personal level, is is giving money to a civil rights activist. But I just think in, in Kaepernick's overall context, it still seems like the both popular consensus and the moneyed consensus is that Kaepernick is wrong and should be out of sight and out of mind. I don't know if it is the popular consensus, though. No, because, sorry, I don't mean yeah. like that. I just mean that, like, you're right, popular consensus. Because people are buying, like, people like this campaign. So at least as far as Kaepernick getting people to buy Nike shoes, he's doing something right. Like, I think it's very divided. Like What I'm opinion. saying is I don't think you, I, I have a hard time imagining like remember the Titan style, right? Like I have a hard time imagining 50 years from now being at an NFL game and people looking back on this particular moment in time when like Mike Pence and everyone else thinks that Cap- that these protests are just the worst and how dare you do this? Like I have a hard time imagining this particular sports culture growing to a point that the culture ultimately concedes that it in 2018 was on the wrong side of history. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's what sort of stresses me out about all this. Like, I just can't really imagine the cultural shift of the NFL as an institution and a lot of its audience coming to understand what Cap is even talking about in the first place. Do you think that the Nike campaign is at least maybe helping with that? That's the thing. I don't yeah. know. Like, I don't know that not even on a level of Nike is a big corporation and I'm skeptical. I just mean, even in terms of the framing, like, even in terms of if you watch the advertisement, if you set aside your, your fundamental concerns with Nike and you just say, okay, well, how are they executing the campaign? I don't know that the execution of the campaign seems like it is helping. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, again, the, the main thing it's helping is it is helping their sales a, a bit and like their, their web sales, but I don't know that that's the same as. It's helping mainstream Kaepernick's political priorities with regard to the conservative elements of its target or of the sports demographic. I don't know if this makes sense, but I think it's like helping with Kaepernick's like the idea of a football player as an activist. I think it's helping mainstream that. I do think that his actual point is getting lost. Like, I don't think it's helping people think about the fact that police brutality like is happening right and that's but that's sort (laughs) of the insidious thing right it's sort of the muhammad aliization of colin kaepernick where Mm -hmm. it's like the, the thing i worry that nike will do is instead of it'll it'll pay kaepernick kaepernick is an activist and an advocate they'll pay him personally but they'll pay him in the process of again transforming his political messaging and his priorities into something bland and palatable Mm -hmm. such that like, I don't know, like I, I, what I can imagine is instead of 50 years from now, you know, white people in stands at NFL games, looking back and being like, yeah, that was a dark period in, you know, the history of the NFL that, Mm -hmm. you know, people didn't, people weren't receptive to what he was trying to underscore about police brutality and racial injustice. What I can imagine is, People looking back and sort of retconning Kaepernick is this just like bland, like Martin like, Luther King. Yeah, Jr. right. Yeah, exactly. Or Muhammad Ali, where yeah. it's just sort of like, 
yeah, you know, he was rebellious. And he was just, like, generically rebellious. Yeah. Is, wasn't that cool? Because Muhammad Ali is, like, the whole image Ali of him. He was a draft dodger who hated white people. I know. The whole, <laughs> the whole image of him has been so intensely softened over right, the years. Right. Yeah, I mean, I could see that happening. I don't know. Yeah, I go back and forth. Like, the, the like, radical leftist part of me, like, my politics say that the campaign is really gross. Um, right. because I, I just think that aligning with Nike is not the right thing to do. Like if I'm being a purist, yeah. but then I'm, I mean, I'm not actually a purist and I look at it and I'm like, well, this might end up being a good thing like for the world. I don't know. It's a good thing for Nike, which is gross. If it, But if it's a good thing for Cap, if it's a good thing for the message he's trying to spread, then I guess I don't care if Nike makes more money. Also, I'm saying this while wearing Nike shoes. Like, I'm a hypocrite. They're <laughs> nice shoes. I saw that when you walked They're in. They're cool. They're actually but, pretty cool. Yeah. But, like, I guess I'm waiting to see how it all shakes out. It does, it is, like, kind of telling that um, Nike is already, like, experiencing this huge boost and Kaepernick still is not playing football. Can you think, I'm trying to think historically of, when is a corporate ne- brand serve to do anything other than sort of leverage political movements or political ideas toward like totally um, castrating them and like, Hmm. again, turning them into instant oatmeal. I mean, I think that a lot of like, like Apple really, it wasn't a political movement, but it really tapped into this sort of like idea of counterculture yeah, and <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a funny thing to say. In 2018, Apple and counterculture. It did though. Like, <laughs> yeah, with it those did. Three right. Different commercials. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> I don't think that Apple has done anything to advance any sort of counterculture. In fact, Apple's like whole mo is getting people to just exist in a Apple ecosystem. Right. I mean. Apple became the mega culture yeah. in a way, or at least in a lot of circles. Like, Isn't it worth a trillion dollars now? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that that's like the first example that springs to mind. I'm sure that there are others though. Right. It just seems like that's the general rule is that corporate, again, it's, you can see the appeal at step one, the appeal is apparent of yeah. corporate brands with youthful demographics in mind, appealing to protest movement, and um, protest style, like uh, you know, protest aesthetics. To oh. use, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know what I was thinking of too is like, do you remember? Probably in like, I think it started in 2015 and then really ramped up in 2016. But a lot of like fashion brands, sort of like commodifying feminism, like right. the future is female. And then there was also this whole thing where Balenciaga was like making Bernie Sanders apparel. <laughs> I don't remember that. It was like oh, Bernie no, Sanders. Go yeah, no, there was like this weird. There was this weird thing where like it became very. Was Balenciaga doing that ironically? Or I don't oh, know. Okay. I mean, that like went <laughs> totally to over that. my head. But there was this whole movement like recently of trying to tap into like female feminist right. rage and just what happened with the election. And there was all this merchandise you could buy. 
that was like feminist themed, but really did nothing but like enrich the sellers of the merchandise. The money that was made was not being donated to like causes. It was literally just people being like, people will buy these shirts that say I'm a feminist. Right. And then I'm going to sell them. And then in contrast with that, like Nike's not even going that way. It's not like Nike. Does Nike have any feminist gear? Well, I just mean that like up they okay so they tap Kaepernick but it's not like Nike now is selling fuck the police t-shirts you know what I mean like that's that's not I just want to be clear like the people burning their shirts or whatever they're they're burning like white socks with a black Nike check on them so that's why that's part of what makes the the potential here the sort of the rebellious potential of this campaign seem limited Outside of just, again, rehabilitating, commercially rehabilitating Colin Kaepernick. And maybe, you know what? Maybe that's worth it. Yeah. Um, but I just, I do think that in the long term, yeah, you, you look at what I think popular culture does to civil rights figures over time. And I think in most cases, they dedicate media that includes advertisement and includes television and film. It almost always, I think, strips those figures of their contacts and strips them of their radicalism in an effort to turn them into these like bland, marketable. Yeah, like bobbleheads, basically. Mm -hmm. So do you think that this is sort of like an acceleration of of that impulse? Like Kaepernick five years from now is just going to be like a feel good figurehead? Ten years. Okay. (laughs) give it 10 years oh man uh well one thing that made me like i'm gonna try to to end the segment on a slightly positive note like while i was reading about this again bowman sort of acknowledged the fact that there there might be a slight silver lining of this whole thing and he wrote immoral though it may be nike apparently believes that people who believe in racial equality are more numerous and more passionate than those who oppose it so basically he was saying that whatever for whatever whatever else happens in this whole thing it's like slightly comforting to know that Nike assumed that there are people who like Kaepernick and his message and that they outnumber those who are like lighting their feet on fire yeah if only because uh you know <laughs> The movement of people are setting their feet on fire. I feel like natural selection maybe doesn't save them. In the yeah. Long run. yeah, if you if your feet are all burnt off, you don't need sneakers. So. Instigating a race war. Meanwhile, yeah. it's like you can't even get drafted because your feet were burnt off. Like, oh, oh man. man. For any listeners who did not have the internet before 2016, I'm just going to do a little spiel about what Gawker was. It was a media-centric website that existed from the early 2000s until 2016. It was a good website. Yeah, it made some mistakes, but it also pursued some really interesting journalism. I'm also just going to say right now that I'm pretty biased because I worked for Gawker Media for two years. yeah, so like just just to be clear, I have an opinion about Gawker and that it it's that it was largely good. Um, but it was bankrupted in 2016. Uh Hulk Hogan sued the company for publishing an article that included a very short clip of his sex tape and a description of it. 
And um, Hulk was actually bankrolled by Peter Thiel, who a libertarian Silicon Valley billionaire who who didn't like uh, Gawker's coverage of technology and in the Valley. And long story short, the company ended up getting sold to Univision, but the Gawker.com website went dormant. Uh, no one would really touch it. They thought it might be too toxic. Uh, people were sad, myself included. And now it seems like Gawker is coming back, which you think people would be happy about, but they're not. I'm not. I'm worried. I think it's going to be kind of a nightmare because a man named Brian Goldberg, who's like an entrepreneur who owns Bustle, which is like a large female-centric media company, he bought the site and is relaunching it. Um, and it's it's going to uh, apparently go live in 2019. That news just broke this week. So I wanted to talk about it because I really like don't see any way that it's not going to be a disaster, but I'm hoping you can um are you <laughs> talk me out or are you optimistic no, about well, this at all? Okay. Am I opt well okay, for, what's the I think there is a a common sentiment mm-hmm. among web journalists of it, it'll be in a really bad political news week, like a really bad Trump news week, and I'll see someone say it. And they'll say it like a, a prayer to the stars. They'll be like, I miss Gawker. Mm-hmm. Or like, it would be really great to have Gawker now. So what, what, what is the, what is the case for resurrecting Gawker? Cause I think people feel like it, it's one of those, we need Gawker now more than ever, ever type situations. Well, I think like the reason why people miss Gawker and the case for relaunching it are different. Like, I think that the people, reason people miss it is that the website did a lot of really good political journalism. Um, it exposed Toronto Mayor Rob Ford's crack addiction. Um, yeah, uh, there was a lot of really smart writing, just like about the political climate in general and how it interacted with with media. Um, Ashley Feinberg, uh, my genius weirdo friend, uh, uncovered James Comey's Twitter account and sort of solved the mystery of Donald Trump's hair. Um, one of the big benefits of Gawker was that they it wasn't really beholden to anyone, so it could go after powerful figures without worrying about offending them at all. Like well, that was it was the, not an access site. I think it's yeah. how we should maybe leave. it had its knives out. Yeah. And and people want that kind of journalism now. Right. So that's why people miss miss it. Also, it was like one of the only funny websites besides the ringer.com, obviously, but like there's not a lot of places that are regularly publishing funny I think Crystal is as funny, in a way, yeah. <laughs> but in a very different way than Gawker was funny. Um, so that's like the argument for bringing why people miss it. Yeah, I don't know what the real argument for bringing it back is because it's obviously not going to be the same. And I, I believe that. I mean, I'm assuming that the argument for bringing it back from like Brian Goldberg's perspective is that it could potentially be a profitable media business. Right. Let's talk about Brian Goldberg. Who yes. Is Who is this? Who is this man? Well, Gawker has covered this yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of interesting because like Brian Goldberg ended up being a character in some Gawker narratives because he was sort of famously pompous. He was a lot of the things that Gawker disliked. Like he was very good at marketing himself, but not as good at delivering the goods. Right, right. I don't know. Um, so he founded Bustle. He also owned 
Elite Daily, which I I actually wrote very negatively about Elite Daily when I worked for Gizmodo because they <laughs> stole my identity. Like they stole a picture of me. What? Did I, did Elaborate on this. this. Yeah. <laughs> it was so weird. So um I elaborate on this. Wait yeah, a minute. One, one day people were like someone came up to me and was like, Why why are you writing for Elite Daily? And if you don't know what Elite Daily is, it's sort of like a, a clickbait uh factory for millennials and i was like i don't write for elite daily and they were like well here's an article that you wrote and it was some bullshit and it had my name and like my actual biography and so i tried to like get all this content removed and it was a whole thing it wasn't like it was a this dude who had this whole scheme where he would take writers identities and then like get paid by impersonating them but like Elite Daily didn't exactly do a great job of vetting that it was really me. Right. And so I was I was mad at them. So anyways, Brian Goldberg used to own Elite Daily. So that's like one strike against him. That is interesting. Um, is that sounds less than ideal. <laughs> that sounds a little shady to me. I'll say, in, so you have Brian Goldberg's attempt to revive in some form Gawker. But it's like, meanwhile, the the journalists that it's like you said, I think people associate Gawker with a specific sort of journalism and specific feats of journalism. And the former Gawker journalists, who I will refer to as the Gawker diaspora, they are spread throughout media now. It's not like, so Gawker died. Gawker mm-hmm. was killed as a website. The journalists of Gawker still largely, not, not all of them, but they work in media and they work in prominent web publications. So it's, I think it's additionally strange that Brian Goldberg is going to sort of corpse revive this website mm-hmm. when meanwhile, the people who actually define that website and its voice and its accomplishments work elsewhere. And I think that creates this weird tension between yeah. the people who are actually there for Gawker and know what the DNA of Gawker is versus whatever the hell Brian Goldberg wants yeah, to do. Because the thing about Brian Goldberg is that sensibility wise, he could not be more far off. I mean, maybe... He'll hire all the right people. Maybe he'll bring some back some people. Maybe he'll just find new voices. Like it's very rare that I'm like rooting against a new media company. You're like a big-hearted I, person. Well, I want more good stuff to read online. Like that's the bottom line. I just want more things that I like to come into my eyeballs when I'm looking at a screen. Right. But <laughs> I just don't see how this is going to work because. Brian Goldberg's like whole MO has been pursuing this sort of toothless, you might be a millennial if <laughs> uh, new journalism. Right. It's just so antithetical to like the original mission or right. even the, I don't, I mean, Gawker evolved a lot over the years, but it's not, it doesn't line up with any iteration of it that I could ever imagine. So I am dubious. Although I got to say like, a lot of media companies are helmed by jerks. Um, and, and jerks and unlikely figures, right? It's weird, yeah. right? It is weird to just hold. I guess it's all we have for now because we don't know who the writers for mm-hmm. such a hype or editors for a hypothetical site would be. So we only have this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is also weird if, it, if you applied it to other media companies, it wouldn't totally hold up as like uh, a website is necessarily represented by the person who owns it or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? That's not necessarily how it always works. Like, I think there are people at Gawker who have 
like complicated feelings about Nick Denton, yeah, who, <laughs> the founder sure. of Gawker, you know, for sure. Uh-oh. And yeah, so it's not like I don't want to completely write it off because I don't know who he's going to hire and they might be great, right. but it just seems like a really poorly conceived idea because you're always going to have to live up to this thing that has sort of become a legend. Like when you were saying that people are always invoking Gawker as like, oh, I miss this entity. Right. Um, And especially in this political moment, in this chaotic post-Trump political moment, it's like designed for Gawker in some ways. Yeah. I kind of think that like that's more powerful than it's more powerful dead than it would be turned into a zombie. So you were, you were talking a second ago about, just as a reader wanting more good content and that's why you root for web companies in general. I think of it differently. I think of Gawker. um, I think of the the current media landscape as not being very conducive to producing, like forget bringing back people who are from the old Gawker or whatever to make the site feel like it's old self again. To me, the important thing about Gawker is that it, it was like a training core for a certain kind of blogger and a certain kind of journalist. Mm -hmm. And I think post Gawker, it just, it's easy to look around at the media landscape and sort of the dominant web properties within it and say, yeah, there isn't a place that exists to train the writer. Like forget the audience engagement and forget, like I'm not saying forget, forget, but I mean, is like you have the fact that web publications aren't serving audiences in the way that Gawker did, but it's also like there isn't a place that's really serving writers in the exact same way that Gawker did. There isn't a place that is producing, I think, hyper-skeptical, snarky, I think, um, writers with their knives out. I think that's what the outline was trying to be. Yeah, that's but then true. It didn't. it ended up not really working out from a business perspective, apparently. So right. it's like... But that's the elusive thing. That's the goal. It's like you, I think we both want that. We want a place that can train a new gen, like again, forget who from the old Gawker they might hire back. It's like, I I want a place that trains a new generation of web writers to embody those ideals in their own way. And I think that's the thing that makes Brian Goldberg stressful is that you can't, I just can't imagine him seeking that kind of writer and trying to cultivate that kind of journalist yeah that would that would shock me (laughs) (laughs) that would definitely shock me um i i guess i i'm holding out a little smidgen of hope that it will be interesting but i'm mainly like dreading that this revival um i find the idea of relaunching a website to be also kind of quaint in 2018 um because people don't go to websites as much as they used to. So having that as your only thing seems very risky to me. Like, for instance, The Ringer is is a new media property. And our website is a is a core component of, of what The Ringer is. But it's also more than that, like video and podcasts, obviously. <laughs> and and documentaries. And, and there's a lot of different moving parts because it seems like that's what a media company has to be in 2018 to buy a URL and then try to fill it with more content and hope bringing that the that, blog back. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like there's something old school about the idea that like, mm-hmm. and like, bringing I, the blog I, want, back. I want blogs to come back. So the, the general concept I like, but it's just, it seems quaint and like, I'm very curious how they plan 
to to make people start going to their Google box and typing in www.gawker.com again, because that's just not how a lot of people access the internet anymore. Counterpoint. You're saying this like Gawker does not have video of Jordan Sargent eating a banana for the first time in his life. I don't know how much. You remember traffic. that video series they did? I don't know. I know. I gave it a lot of traffic. I watched those videos <laughs> a lot. Shout out to Jordan. Replaying, replaying. <laughs> um, I don't. Maybe there. Maybe Brian Goldberg's going to do a video series. I don't know. But it just seems like the idea of doing just a website is bold. I think that it's weird because I think the Gizmodo Media Group, the success, I think the remaining sites in that network, they realize that. Like mm-hmm. they produce video, they have podcasts, podcasts, they have yeah. good podcasts. You know what I mean? And so it's like, that's the other thing that makes this seem quaint though. It's like the other, yeah, it's, you have Jezebel and you have Deadspin and you have Gizmodo and they're grappling with these questions. And meanwhile, it's like, so you take those living sites that are grappling with what it means to be a new media company. In this current year, and you contrast that with again this sort of discordant guy being like, "I'm going to reactivate this blog." <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. So even in comparison to other media properties in its own orbit, it seems strange. As just prospectively, it's, it's it seems really, strange. it's really strange. Yeah. But Maybe you, it will be my f- new favorite website. I, I mean, well, here's the thing, though. Know. The counterpoint yeah. to all this is that as it stands, you know, the top post chronologically on gawker.com is by Nick Denton and you can't let that stand. You got Nick Denton has the last word. He has the last blog. Uh, It should have been like, who should have had the last blog post on Gawker? I think it's appropriate that he did. It's it's a very good post. It's a very good post, but it's also like, I I liked him actually though. I thought Nick was a good boss. Actually, it's going to be weird for him not to. Yeah. Like it's really going to sort of push him out of the, the Gawker. Right. Narrative right. in a weird way. Unless he gets hired by Brian Goldberg, that would be strange. Would be, yeah. I don't even know if that, like, now I'm so accustomed to everything being bizarre that I'm like, who knows? Maybe he will. Yeah. And in fairness, Gawker was always a deeply strange website. <laughs> <laughs> so stranger things have happened. If you could bring one media company back from the dead do you have any favorites or like magazines like people are always talking about rebooting spy magazine here's the thing i, I never read it though. i literally was never <laughs> yeah. in magazine culture ever oh i love magazines i was really most of the magazines i was really into still exist in some form like i went through a phase of being like really into ew mm, okay. in like the 90s i like demanded an entertainment weekly subscription <laughs> um I did I did really love like the glossies like I loved print magazines but there aren't any that I've been like the world must have this come back. I'm generally of the opinion that like reboots are bad. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard because it's like again it's rebooting a ma- like trying to think of what magazine brands are reboot. I don't know. It just it's like you said we we live in a media landscape now that feels so fundamentally new mm-hmm. that even if you if you were to take like a brand and relaunch it, the thing that it would have to be to sort of suit the demands of the current media landscape would just be so fundamentally different from what it was. Like relaunching Spy on the internet in like the post-podcasting internet. Like what, what is that even, you know, constitutionally? Like it's just a totally different thing, no matter what you're taking and trying to reanimate. And it, it is weird to see Gawker become 
a test case for it. I know. I I think we're going to end on a paradox because the main thing I wonder about new Gawker is the main thing I want. I need Gawker coverage of the new Gawker. (laughs) That's the problem. Yeah. I need, like, that's the thing. It's like, Gawker's where you go for that good media criticism. Yeah, and like, meta, right. niche, media drama. And so what is what is Gawker 2.0 without either Gawker 1.0 or Gawker 2.0's meta commentary of its own owners in this rewatch? I do think that, um, if not on Gawker itself, all of the former Gawker employees will be tweeting about new Gawker with a vengeance. I'm Justin Charity. I'm Kate Nibbs. That's this week's Damage Control. And you will hear from us again in two weeks.